So if I, if I ask you by a show of hands, uh, how many of you have experience with grief? Yeah. Now, when I say grief, most commonly what we think of would be uh, losing a loved one or someone close to us, and that's primarily uh, what we associate grief with. Now, just the simple common dictionary definition would be grief would be deep distress due to an unfortunate outcome. So grief is a universal experience. It's a global certainty. It crosses every distinction of race or socioeconomic situation or uh, location or it's, it doesn't matter. And when we're talking about the grief of losing someone, what we need to realize is that we only have two options in every relationship. It either you leave or I leave. But somebody's leaving because it's not going to stay the way it is forever, is it? No. And so you really have to just let that settle in and just realize that no matter how uh, old we are or young we are or how uh, confident we feel in this or that or the other, I mean, the bottom line is, is that uh, every significant, important relationship in our life is careening toward a grief moment. Now, there is one way where there's no grief, and I do need to add that in parentheses. Only if we leave together, there's no grief. Amen? So there's always that. And it's always good to think about that. So Jesus comes along in John 16, and he says, These things I have spoken to you, and then he gives the reason that he's spoken all of the things that he's just previously said. That you, you may have peace. That in him you may have peace. Because in the world you're going to have tribulation. I quote this verse all the time. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. So that we may have peace in him. And the reality that. There's going to be hardship, there's going to be trial, there's going to be struggle, but this, he's overcome the world. Now let's just talk about the broadness of grief for a second. So maybe it's not just associated with losing people that are close to us, but grief oftentimes comes into our lives when dreams die. So for example, maybe you have... Uh, lived your life uh, dreaming and hoping and working towards achieving a certain end goal, you know, some uh, occupational accomplishment. You want to be a fighter pilot or you want to be a doctor or you want to do this or you want to do that. And then right before you achieve that moment, something happens and it ends. We see this with athletes who have worked all their life to become uh, professional and then maybe the senior year in college, their knees blown out and their career's over with and they're and then it's the, the, the emotional, physical toll that happens in that situation is just like there was a death in their family or in their immediate proximity. 
What about when you grow up and you get married and then a few years into marriage you find out that you're unable to have children? There's a grief moment. It's not that it only lasts a moment, but it's a grief. Grief is born in that moment, and then a season follows. What about, uh, I see this a lot, where uh, we're going along and we raise our kids, and then the last kid moves out of the house, and there's this empty nest moment where two people are looking at each other going, you know, what now? And a lot of times, not always, there's a lot of different ways that affects us, but a lot of times the mom, especially, uh, especially, if you know, just depending on the situation, but I've seen it many times in our fellowship where the mom just literally loses her identity because the kids are gone, and it's understandable. It's understandable. There is a solution. You just start over in your 50s, and it's a beautiful thing. So let's just go right in, right back into it. Then there's a different kind of grief that follows. What is born in a moment becomes a season. And here's the reason we need to have this conversation tonight is partially so that because all of us have grief in our future, so let's talk through some of these things and prepare ourselves for some of these things so that we can walk through that. But the real benefit to this, because the real burden on my heart with regards to the voice of grief is the damage that we do. And so I've talked about this stuff before, but every time I talk about it, it's different. And so it'll be different tonight. I mean, a lot of the things I'm going to say tonight I haven't said before because it, you know, it's, uh, it's just a, it's a broad topic and there's a lot to say and there's so many places in Scripture you can choose from. Now, if we just wanted to have a, a, a very clinical conversation about grief, which I don't, but we can for like two minutes, okay? Let's talk about the stages of grief just so that we, I want you to have this on your handout so that I feel like as I was praying for you, I felt like there'd be a moment in your future where you're going to dig this handout back up because you're going to need it personally or you're going to need it to care for somebody that you love. So you'll need to know this information. There's shock and there's disbelief that this happened. Listen, I, I see this in so many different ways. Even when somebody has been chronically ill for a long time, like on the brink of death for a long time, so that it no one should be surprised when they pass away. And the spouse is literally, or the, some family members are in shock. So don't think that preparation somehow prepares you for this so that you're going to be able to just navigate right through it. I mean, that is not the case. That's not the case. So even uh, sometimes a mistake we make is we think that because somebody lost somebody who was 90, well, we shouldn't be surprised about it. Well, let me tell you what, what the, the grief quotient of losing somebody who's 90 is not how old the person is. It's how close you are to them. 
So even though they're 90, listen, there's somebody in this room right now that is almost 90. And when she passes away, my two grown children are going to be devastated beyond belief. They're with her every day of the week. She is such a humongous part of my kids' lives. They're going to be devastated. And it's not because we don't know that she's getting older and that she's getting closer. And she tells us all the time how much she wants to go to heaven, which infuriates my kids. But, but it's, it's the closeness of the relationship. Okay, then there's anger. Now understand, these you might want to write out to the side uh, or put a little arrow, you know, top to bottom or something to symbolize you to remember that these don't go in this order all the time. You're just going gonna, gonna to touch all these things through the entire process, but it may be one, three, two, five, you know, I mean, you, you might move through it in a different way, or you might go one, two, three, and then go back to two for a while before you get to four. Anger is number two, so you get angry, you take it out. Usually when there's anger and grief, it is taken out on the people closest to you. So you find that families start having, when grief enters into a family, you start, uh, siblings lose a parent, then the sibling relationships start breaking down, or things start, you know, it's the people closest to you that oftentimes get all the shrapnel from that. Then we move into bargaining and guilt. This is where... Um, you know, you start having the conversation in your head, if only I would have done this then. So it could have been maybe only if I would have done this that this wouldn't have happened and the person wouldn't be gone. Or maybe if I would have done this, then we would have had a better relationship when they were here. Or if I would have done this and I would have been more prepared to lose them. Or if, and you've nev- no one's ever lost anybody close to them and not had regrets. That's basically impossible that, for you not to have some regrets about... I mean... You can't lose somebody that you love dearly and ever feel like you spent enough time with them. Okay? It's just part of it. And then what happens with the guilt is is that uh, the guilt is based on a responsibility you were never able to, never meant to, to carry. It's not yours to carry. You see, we're, we're not the, the decision makers of life or death, are we? And so we, we have to infuse truth into that guilt that we feel. Then it oftentimes leads to depression uh, as we start to come to the realization of where we are and what's going to be ahead and how we're going to navigate this new, uh, what has become our new permanent normal. And then finally, we at some point would enter into acceptance and hope. Now, what do you think the um, what do you think the normal in a normal situation uh, when someone loses someone that's very close to them, let's say that someone loses a spouse, how many months does it take for the healing to begin, not to be completed, but to begin. 18 to 24 months to begin. 
So this idea, see, we live in a culture that has got everything about grief wrong and backwards. And because we have no patience and we think everything happens overnight and we just want to suppress everything and medicate everything and become numb over everything and we just want, everyone just wants to move on, well, it just doesn't work like that. And there's a lot of you in the room that you know exactly what I'm talking about. There was two years before you even started. That's just normal. That's normal. Now notice in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul speaks to a group of people that are grieving together, he says, but we do not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, sisters, brethren, about those who are asleep, meaning those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage of Scripture. As Paul is infusing the hope of the gospel into the grieving situation, he doesn't tell them not to grieve. In fact, the expectation is, is that you're going to grieve. Paul's heart is for them to grieve well because not grieving is not an option. It's not an option. So, let's talk about some things that we should understand and that would be helpful for us to care for people who are grieving. Okay? So, the first thing the Bible would teach us is, I should grieve. Not only is there nothing wrong with grief, you should grieve. There's a reason we grieve. God made us to grieve. It's a gift to grieve. We're made in His image. He's a God who grieves. And so it's something that we should do. Now, we must do it. We can't help but do it. But what, the, what we want to do is we should grieve, and we should grieve well, or we should grieve appropriately. And the key to grieving appropriately, in my opinion, is having somebody around you who understands this. And so all of you, after tonight, will be uh, perfectly equipped to be a real blessing to people who are grieving. So I want to give you some examples of grief in the Scripture. So when Joseph loses his dad in Genesis 50, the Bible says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and physicians to embalm him, his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel 40 days they required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So there's this 70-day period of grieving. Then a few verses later, there's another uh, 7 or 14 days of grieving uh, for Joseph. Then in Numbers 20, now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. So there's 30 days of now, understand, this doesn't mean that after 30 days the grief process was over. This is more the equivalent of where we have a three- or four-hour visitation and funeral. They had 30 days of processing. You follow? That's the, that's the would be the equivalent. Deuteronomy 34, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his... 
natural vigor diminished, and the children of Israel wept for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days. 2 Samuel 1, David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with them, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, you notice, like if, if this was Sesame Street and one of these things didn't belong, you'd be like, yes. Second Samuel. So, what's the difference? We've got 70 days, 30 days, 30 days, and the guy who was trying to kill me died in battle, even though it was my people that just got whipped in battle. Saul's been trying to kill me, and he died. And so David's like, well, that's sad, so we're going to mourn for like four hours. But, I mean, that's, it's just one afternoon. But the guy's been trying to kill him. But he still mourned. And he lost his uh, best friend, Jonathan. So you should, you should ask yourself this uh, question. Have you given yourself permission to grieve? See, there might be some of you in the room who think that you're done with your grief and you, you went through a process of grief and it could have been a decade ago, it could have been two decades ago, and you might not have ever dealt with it. You might have just suppressed it all of this time, and so it will not go away until it's been dealt with. And so the challenge now is to realize that what you think is normal is actually unhealthy because you still have grief that's been undealt with. So here's God's plan for us with regards to uh, our current culture and the way we respond to grief, and that is to resist avoidance, to resist it. Now, there's a lot of uh, reasons, I suppose, that... uh, Pastors normally don't stay at churches more than a couple of years. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why that's true. But if if you were if we were if I was standing up in a seminary right now and you were a room full of young uh, young men in seminary being trained to be pastors, and you were curious as to uh, you know. What are some of the unique challenges associated with uh, being at one church all of your life? Way up close to the top of that would be, you see, most pastors are able to just do funerals and disconnect themselves from the situation. But that's not what happens here. And so... I think it would be a blessing if God lets me die pastoring this church. But I will say that, that if that's the case, one of the heaviest, steepest burdens that I have carried will be 
trying to care for people when I'm trying to grieve myself. It's easy uh, to do a funeral for a stranger. It's incredibly difficult. It's incre- you know, that, that's why pastors who maybe lose a spouse or a child oftentimes won't perform that funeral. But you know what I do? I perform funerals for people in my family 30 times a year. And so I might be on to the, you know, doing a funeral, and I'm still trying to heal from three funerals ago. And it's just, uh, it's just a very, very difficult thing. And so, what, but, but we live in a world and a culture that wants to just avoid all of this. My biggest, every, all the families that are in here that have lost somebody, you already know, you know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to move into your living room. I'm going to get everybody in that living room, and I'm going to look everybody in the eye, and I'm going to say, you need to grieve. And I'm going to try to convince you that you need to grieve, and I'm going to, I'm going to get you to tell me all the stories that you can tell me about your loved one, which takes about two seconds, and you'll start telling me all these stories, and then I'm going to stop after about 45 minutes, and I'm going to say, look around the room, and I'm going to say, look at everybody in the room is smiling. you got tears running down your face, but you're smiling because nothing is more healing than to talk about the person who's gone. The most horrible thing you can do is never mention them because you feel like it's going to make everyone sad and we're just going to avoid the whole thing like it never happened and just move on. That is so unhealthy. We need to talk about it. And so when the first Christmas comes around and they're not there, don't act like nothing's different. Point. We should all have a conversation about and you should sit down and talk about your favorite stories with regards to the person who's not here in Christmas. That's what you should do. And you should go ahead and cry a little bit and get it out. But don't act like they, they, that it never happened. That's the worst thing to do. The worst. The worst. Now, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I thought about this because yesterday I was in a drive-thru and there was a pickup truck in front of me and there's a giant sticker on the back of the pickup truck that said, in loving memory of, you know, and then they had this person. And I've always thought to myself, is that healthy? I mean, I don't know, I, but I know this. I know that at least that person is not suppressing it, okay? So I'm not saying that, you know, uh, we ought to put stickers on everything because, uh, you know, I feel like that's problematic because what I want you to do is I want you to discuss the person who's not there with the other people that love the person. What's not healthy about a big sticker on the back of your truck is that everywhere you go, every random person you talk to is going to say, well, what's the sticker about? And then you're going to have to go through the whole thing again. Do you follow me? So the real healing comes when you talk to other people who love the same person. But you know, what we've been trained to do is to you know, whenever we, everything we hear about grief is 
trying to teach us how to tie it up, put a bow on it, and throw it in the ocean. And like it's just going to go away. And, you know, there's no school that you can go to that's going to train you to be prepared for grief, but yet we're all going to, we're all going to that university. But nobody trains anybody to, to deal with it, to be prepared for it. And even when we, it's, it's interesting, even when we minister to people who are, are, you know, we only minister to people who are already in grief, and then we have the hardest time to get them to allow us to minister to them. And it's all because of the, the, the way the culture has conditioned us to think about grief. So here's what we do. The worst thing to possibly do. We resort to trying to cheer each other up. You see, if we can just cheer each other up, if we can just get back to laughing and carrying on and, you know, let's just go do something that's going to get our mind off of it and we're just going to forget this ever happened. Really? You think you could be married to somebody for 50 years and they pass away and you think you could forget that ever happened? You think you could lose a child and forget that ever happened? How absurd is that? But that's what our culture does. I can remember early on when I didn't know anything about anything. And I didn't know how to deal with grief. and So I had to deal with uh, people who are going through grief. And so I thought the best thing for me to do would be to try to get their mind. I mean, I can remember 25 years ago thinking the best thing I can do is just try to get their mind off of uh, the, the pain. Mm -mm. That's not what the Bible teaches. And then the other thing we do is we don't know what to say, so we, we start in with the religious cliches that are so unhelpful. You know, you just, you just lost somebody and you're devastated. And then somehow we think that, you know, hugging them and saying, God's got this. What, what exactly does God got? I mean, how does that... change see some of you in this room are like man that is so true because you've been shattered into a billion pieces and you've heard all the religious cliches and you know that they were meant to be sincere but they're not helpful it's not helpful to tell somebody it's all in God's plan that's just not helpful you see just because something's true doesn't mean it needs to be said. We, we need to understand timing. And when somebody has just suffered a great loss, that's not the time they need to hear that. In fact, really, that's not the time they need to hear anything out of your mouth. This is what the Bible would teach. But see, well, here's why we do that. We do that, and, and, and this is the truth, because listen... You've heard me say this before. 
I'm trying to train us to be better, but the worst of humanity, the worst of humanity, the worst of Christianity comes out in the line at the wake because I stand right there and I listen over and over and over to the ignorant, dumb, ridiculous things that people say over and over and over. And it breaks my heart. And they mean well. And here's the thing. Why are you so freaked out because you don't know what to say? You know, and here's, here's, here's the thing. You, you know, uh, the truth is that a lot of what we say in those moments is to just try to, we don't know what to do, and so we want to feel better too. So that's how we dance around the terror. We dance around the, the struggle. See, most of us, we have to whistle and cartwheel when we walk past the graveyard. So a couple of months ago, me and Pastor Matt took our two boys on an adventure, and we went out of town, and as we were walking, we went past this graveyard, and it was one of those graveyards where all the graves are up, you know, in like mausoleums and stuff, they're all up above the ground, and so it was, you know, and it was dark, you know, and it had a wrought iron fence. And so, and you, you know what? If you, if you stand by a graveyard in the daytime and just watch people walk on the sidewalk next to a graveyard, do you know what people do? They don't look at it. They pretend like it's not there. They're just, oh, like that thing is no, 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 no. Is that not silly? That's so silly. And it's exposing something in us. We don't know what to do. Why would a graveyard freak people out? I mean, haven't we grown up past Scooby-Doo? It's silly. It's so silly. We just want to pretend it's not there. It just, anything that reminds us, how many, I mean, some of you in the room, you'd say, man, I just, I hate hospitals. Well, I never heard anybody say, well, I love hospitals because, man, it's just full of sick people. But, I mean, hey, there's sick people getting help, right? I mean... So, grief severity is direct, directly proportional to the loss. So, the closer the person, the more, uh, the more influence the relationship had in your life that you've lost is going to create the greater, um, the more you're invested in it. And so, if, it, if it's not a person that you've lost and you've lost something, the more that you've personally invested in that something the more you've spent your life focused on dreaming about building towards whatever it is that when that dream dies or that person leaves your life, 
the more devastating it's going to be. And I mean, that just makes sense. So how can we grieve well? How can we... How can, we, how can we move through the process embracing the fact that grief is, is necessary and it's a gift and it's part of it? Because, you know, I always think as, as I'm working through my own personal grief, I always think, well, you know, I, as much as I hate to grieve, I wouldn't trade it, I wouldn't trade it for anything because... To not grieve is to not love. And I'm taking love every single time. Every single time. I mean, to me, the worst possible situation would be to go through life and not love anybody. So no matter how hard it is, got to count it a blessing to be able to love so many people. The people that you get to love, what a blessing that is. But you know, the cost of that is grief. But, but you know what? Whoever you if, you, if you wrote a list of the ten most important people in your life right now, you're either going to grieve them or they're going to grieve you. But you, there's no way that you'd walk away from those relationships to avoid that grief. Because the reward is so much greater. It's so much greater. So how do we, how do, we do this well? So we can help other people, but we can also do it well. I think the first thing is we want to be attentive to time. And you can put in parentheses out to the side of this what I mean a lot of ways you'll understand this is by managing expectations. It's very important to be attentive, to pay attention to time. Because what I know, what 20 years of funerals have taught me, is that people have a timeline on their grief. Everybody has a timeline on their grief. Every family that I've ever ministered to has a timeline on their grief. And so in their mind, they feel like in, in, at some particular time in the future, some, a lot of them feel like when I just can get past the funeral. I'm looking around the room at so many of you that I've said to you in your situation, you won't even... The shock won't even wear off until after the funeral. And those of you that have lost very significant people, do you know what you know that no one else knows? The funeral is a blur. You don't even remember the funeral. It's a blur. You're numb. You're numb. When, uh, the, the, it's a blur. So, but people literally think when I get through the funeral, you know what I mean, I'm, I'm going to be able to, to, to feel better. Or, or is it going to be a month from now or two months from now? Or is it going to be, or if I can get through Christmas, if I can get past their birthday, if I can get past our anniversary? Or you got to be attentive to time because, you know, how soon do you expect yourself to be okay? And how do you define okay? And where did you ever get that idea? And why we associate the time with our negative, the, the more negative we feel about grief the shorter the time we're going to allot ourselves because we, you, maybe you grew up in a family where you were taught grief is wrong. I mean, I could tell you story after story after story of how I've seen so many people do so much damage to, especially young boys, young men. 
I've seen so many times where a, a, a young boy, his father dies or his grandfather who is his hero dies. And then people in the family come up to him and say, look, you know, he's crying. And they say, look, you got to get a hold of yourself. You got to, you know, you got to be strong. You got to stop. Why would you say that? Why would you stop? What, what, who in the world taught you that a man doesn't cry? Who taught you that? What a lie that is. I didn't cry my whole life until I got saved and became a man. But I hear people say that. It's horrible. Horrible. You got to be attentive to time. You got to manage expectations. You know, you think about how long the Israelites mourned the loss of their leaders. They were honoring them. So if they had a, a funeral that lasted a month, it was, it was honoring them. And there was, they, were, they were grieving and wailing and sobbing. And, you know, and it was like day after day after day after day after day. But they knew that you, you can't just skip over that. I think most people would read the Old Testament and think, these people are like, you know, gluttons for punishment. No, they're not. They're, they get it. Secondly, we need to be available emotionally. So this idea that people expect us to be strong, what, what does that even mean? The strongest people that I've ever seen deal with grief are the people who, who lead their loved ones through grief by example, by being emotionally present. So here's the questions I would ask about this because, again, I'm not just talking to men, but, boy, we got such a problem here. Man, such a problem. So here's some simple questions to address your, your situation. How am I suppressing emotions, and why am I doing that? Maybe you've heard me say before, uh, talk about the fact that when Lisa and I got married, uh, I told her, point blank, because I'd said this many, many times. I, to I told her, uh, I said, look, I just, you need to know something about me. I don't cry. And she said, why don't you cry? And I said, well, my tear ducts are stopped up or dried out or, or I was born without them or I'm not really sure because I don't cry. And I, do, I never cried. And I went through lots of horrible things and, and never cried. I got saved and never stopped crying. I just wasn't emotionally present. I was just filled with bitterness at everything that had happened to me. And that was the reason why I was just emotionally broken. So somehow we think that people who cry a lot are emotionally broken when the most broken people are the people who don't show emotion. Amen. Own it. Eat it. It's the truth. Some of, there's some men in the room right now thinking, well, it's just the way I am. You're lying. You're lying. 
That's not true. There's something wrong. Go back and look at the verses that I put on this thing. And let me tell you something. You, I want you to come up here after the service and tell me you're more of a man than Joshua. Tell me that. Because I'll laugh in your face. Because you're not even close. And he wailed. I'm talking about David was a was the most manly man you could imagine. And he wailed when he lost. When he lost people, he wailed at his sin. He listen, something's wrong with you. Why am I suppressing? The second question is, well, how do you think you should feel? Like, where did you get this idea? How come you have this idea that you should feel a certain way that is contrary to the way God made you? We're, we're led to believe that if we somehow can come up with the right combination of magic words, then the pain is going to be solved, like, like it's a math equation or something. No, it's not. There's no words that are going to solve it. It's not just going to go away. That's not how that works. The third thing is we need to be engaged spiritually. So we've got to be attentive to time or expectations. We've got to be available emotionally, and we've got to be engaged spiritually. We've got to recognize what's happening spiritually when I'm grieving. When I'm grieving, the flesh is being broken down, and the spirit's being built up. That's what's happening. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like something is, uh, but, but proper grieving is the breaking down of the flesh and the building up of the spirit. That's what it is. That's what the Bible teaches. When we're grieving, we oftentimes ask ourselves, why does it seem so hard to seek after God? Or why does God seem so far from me? When everything in the Bible teaches what? When we're grieving... God is closer than any other time. He's always telling us that it's the person with the broken heart that he's closest to, that he's drawn to. The, it's, the, it's the one who's grieving, who's wailing, who's broken, right? Yes. Well, now why? Is he, is he just saying that? No, because he is. So you should grieve. That's the first thing. Okay, now here comes the, the part for all of us here. I should grieve, and I should do it in community. And, and this, is, this isn't negotiable. It's not debatable. The Bible is so clear about this. Here's a great example in John 19. There's Jesus hanging on the cross. The Bible says he sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved. That would be John standing nearby. And he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What is Jesus doing right there? 
He's recognizing that his mom is about to grieve his loss, and he's son and God at the same time. And so in an act of, of uh, God's all-knowing presence and his humanity, he realizes she's going to need to be cared for, and she can't do this alone. And so he puts her in the care of somebody. So how often do we miss participating in the ministry of presence because we don't know what to say or how to fix things for someone? So we just, people say this to me all the time. They go, you know, I want to do something or I I was going to go see him or I was going to call him or I was going to, but I just don't know what to say. So you did nothing. Which I will admit is better than saying something stupid. But not the top choice here. Wouldn't it be better for us to learn what to say? So look at Job. Remember we went through Job. We we had fun with this passage in Job chapter 2. So when Job's friends, they see him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him, and they raised their voices, and they wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So we see that, that suffering takes a physical toll on us. It, it affects us physically. It, we, we don't. You know, you can, you can tell somebody's still grieving a lot of times by just looking at their physical condition. And so his friends who didn't do almost anything right, boy, they did right here. They handled this perfectly. You see, in, in the moment when somebody's world comes crashing down, what they don't need is your wisdom. They don't need wisdom. That's not what they need. See, even if you have good advice, your advice is not as good as being on the floor with me. That's what they need. They they need somebody who's going to get down on the floor and sit with them. And just hug them. Just let them cry on you. Or just cry with them. Or just be there. You ever been in a situation where something terrible happens and you're there, story of my life, and there's nothing you can do to change it. There's nothing you can do to make the pain go away. There's nothing. And so then maybe like the husband and the wife are embracing each other, crying together or, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the main components of the family unit are, are, are there and you're in the room and then you just don't know what to do, right? But you're there. Just, just be there. Just be there. You know, don't, don't sit there as they're sitting there crying and just stare at them crying, just close your mouth, close your eyes, put your head down and start praying for them. But just be there. Like, don't, don't let the, 
the, your awkward feeling in that moment drive you out of the room, but the, you're there. And, and you know what? When you're devastated, just having people that love you around you means a whole lot. And there's nothing that's going to make it uh, good, but you just, just having people there. Just having people there. I've driven hours and hours and hours out of town to get to someone's house that I love who suffered terrible loss and just sit in their living room and just sit there. Like they're, they're in the bedroom wailing or crying or they're, and, and I just sit there. Because I love you. And I want you to know that I love you. And I'm not trying to talk to you. I'm not trying to. I just want you to know I'm here. And you just stay there as long as you can. And then you just leave. And trust me, they know you were there. They know you were there. And it's, it means something. There's time for words, but that's going to come later. You know, there will come a time when... Uh, when it would be nice to take them out for a hamburger and take them bowling to, to just cheer them up. And, but it's a, it's a long way past. It's way down the road. It's way down the road. There's no theology that's going to make this better. It's just not. It doesn't mean that the Bible's useless in this moment because it certainly isn't. Like there's super helpful things you could do. You can, you can just quietly read a psalm of, of someone who's going through difficulty. And what that does is it's just a subtle reminder that God cares and a subtle reminder that you're not alone and it's a subtle reminder that God understands the situation. But no, no cliches. So you should grieve. You should grieve in community. And then lastly, I should grieve in community with hope. That's what we want to do. We want to grieve in community with hope. Grieve in community with hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, Paul says to the church at Corinth, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by. So this is what this verse tells me about God. It's some very important things. First of all, God's not the dad that tells us it's not that bad. He never does that. He never does that. He may infuse hope in the situation, but he never, God never diminishes the pain of the moment. And he never tries to look past it because to do so would be to reject his creation and his divine purpose in creating us to be 
to grieve. So he's not the dad that says, you know, it's not that bad. And where's the easiest place for us to lose hope? It's always pain. It's always pain. Pain is a hope killer, especially pain that doesn't seem like it's going to go away. It's a hope killer. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see that? Again, the Bible is saying, hey, here's the great Paul. And look at the grief he suffered. And look at the despair that it led him to. And it doesn't diminish that fact. Doesn't say that that wasn't real. Doesn't happen. Simply offers a purpose without diminishing the reality of the moment. So here's what this, that passage does. It assures us that there's purpose in our pain, which is, is helpful. Because here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to go through this terrible season of grief for nothing. How can you comfort others with the comfort that you've received from God in the hardships that you face in your life? How can you do that? It's a great question. If you've, if you've gone through great grief, you have a tremendous gift that needs to be shared. Because what happens when I mean, how many young people do we have to bury before we realize that the people around them are not, they're not you know, they, they don't have any framework to deal with this. So here's a bit of a shocking statement, I think, probably to some of you. Gr grief is less about letting go and more about letting in. See, I want you to see grief in the opposite way that you've always been told to see it or trained to see it or or the culture has inoculated you to see it. I want you to see it in the opposite way. I mean, not only do I think it's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous to think about letting go. I, I think it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Well, Am I going to tell you 
that your son who you lost or your husband that you lost or your wife of 50 years that you lost that really what you need to do is is let go of them so that you can get through the grief do you really do you really think it's healthy to tell somebody to let go of their loved one is that what we ought to be doing no we ought to be letting in we ought to be moving into the, that tremendous relationship and that tremendous impact that that person had on our lives. So this is what I mean by this. Even after somebody's gone, you can keep carrying their voice. The parts that you love the most, the parts that you miss the most, the parts that God bestowed as a gift for an allotted time. You should press into those things. You should, you, should, you should have deep conversations and deep thought about how is this person that's not in my life anymore, how is their legacy going to live on through me, through us? We should be pressing in. We should be letting in. We should be, we should be thinking about uh, the all of the all of the dreams that we uh, that that we saw come true. This is sort of a way to think about it. All the dreams that you experienced with with this person that you saw come true, or like the highlights of their life. Those are things you need to memorialize in your heart, not forget about. Remember those things and 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 bring them in close and do things that are healthy about that. Then on the other side, the things that were, if you lost somebody too soon and there were things that were unfulfilled, so then how can you honor those unfulfilled dreams in their absence? How can you carry that on and do that? So like if you always wanted to do something with this person, but they pass away and you weren't able to do it, so my first question you would be, then who is the most significant person in your life that you and them can do this in honor of the person who's not here. Let in. You notice how the, the uh, African-American culture grieves so differently oftentimes? And you ever notice how one of the things that they have a tendency to do is when they lose somebody significant in their life, like they make T-shirts with their picture on it and it says things on it? That's healthy. You know why, why we don't do that? Because we're trying to forget. That's not healthy. That's unhealthy. We should be, we should be letting in. Letting in. The reason that grief is always associated with anger is because it's an admission that the loss is not right. You see, not everyone that loses somebody experiences anger. Because not everybody that loses somebody was deeply connected to that person. See, sometimes you lose somebody who's in proximity to you, but you really didn't have a relationship with them. So you don't get angry about that. Anger is rooted in the reality that, that, that 
separation's wrong, that I reject that, that that's not what's supposed to be. It's wrong. God didn't create us to be separated. He created us to be together forever. So whenever we lose somebody, we're, we're grieving and angry at it's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. This isn't the way God intended for it to be. We weren't designed for this. We weep. Grief weeps because grief is a refusal to accept. Why are we weeping? Because we're not, we, we don't accept it. You see, that's why weeping is such an expression of I'm emotionally healthy. It's because I'm weeping because I don't accept that this is the, the intention, the right thing, the way God intended for uh, all of this to work. So there's the, the million-dollar verse in John 11 that everyone, you know, memorizes when they have to memorize a verse. Your kids always go, I know a verse. John 11, 35. But man, these two words. I could have done the whole night on just these two words. So here Jesus is. And he's weeping. And why is he weeping? He's weeping over the death of his good friend Lazarus. And he's already told his family that he's going to raise him from the dead. So not only does he, because he's Jesus, already know what's about to happen, but he's already expressed what he's about to do to everybody around. And yet, he weeps. Literally, he weeps in verse 35. We're, we're literally like minutes before Lazarus is completely alive. Minutes. And it's so significant to me that Jesus weeps. So significant. Remember what I just said about weeping? Jesus isn't, uh, he's not okay with death. Jesus isn't saying death is okay. He's weeping because he's refusal to say that death is okay. He hates death. And what happens oftentimes when people talk about John eleven thirty five, they they try to uh, overcomplicate the situation and start saying all this stuff about you know make it real super deep and theological and all of those things may have some meaning in there. But you know what? That, that I don't I don't see that as the most practical. Uh, that's not what's happening here. This one little verse is how we can be sure that he gets it. You know, th these two words are how I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my Savior gets my broken heart and my grief and my separation and my loss. I know He understands because of these two words. You see, He knows things that, that I could never know on this earth. And he knows that this isn't how it's supposed to be. And he has experienced what none of us in the room have experienced. See, he has experienced existence in perfection, which we never have. We can only read about it and dream about it, but we've never experienced. But he has. 
And so the one who knows what it's like to exist apart from sin, who has now been thrust into this world, which is the only world that we know, the way he responds to this is so significant because it assures us that God is like utterly opposed to any concept of I'm going to accept this. This idea that Jesus would go, I think, I think a lot of people subconsciously think that what Jesus would do in this situation is say, death is part of life. You should just know that. Instead, he cries. And let me tell you something. That word, wept, is not the word for a couple of tears going down your face. It's the Greek word for sobbed. He didn't say, hey, duh, it's a sin-cursed world. Death's going to happen. He sobbed. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. But in our race to get past grief and to not think about death and to just hurry up and get back to life as normal. Have you ever considered the way God orchestrated this relationship that we have with him with regards to death? Look, look at 1 Corinthians 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke, he broke bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So isn't it interesting that in our quest to rid ourselves of grief, God says, here's what you're going to do, New Testament church. I want you to be constantly reminded of death. And I want you to celebrate. I don't want you to push out. I want you to bring in my death. And I want you to do it symbolically so that when you gather together, you go, this is my blood. This is my body. I want you to press in to death. Not run away from it. Not, not be afraid to look at graveyards. Not try to hurry up and just get back to normal. Not try to distract people and, and do fun things with them so they don't think about what they lost. No. I want you to press into it. I want you to remember it. I want you to, I want you to celebrate. I want you to think about it. I want you to talk about it. So don't you think that don't you think that what God's saying to us tonight is that whoever it whoever 
is the most significant loss that you've ever suffered in your life. Trying not to think about that would be the opposite of what you should do. You should make it healthy. Celebrate what's good. Don't pretend it never happened. Give yourself the time you need to, to be okay. And you know what? When you're... Uh, see, because I'm always around you. And I'm aware of who you've lost. And so you know what? When I'm with you and you say something that reminds me of the person that you've lost, you know what I do? I don't act like I, I talk about it. I go, yeah, you know what that reminds me of? And I talk with you about that. It's good. It's good. Isn't it amazing that some of you, the, the loss that you've suffered is, is maybe the most or one of the most significant gifts that God's ever given you. And yet the way, we, the way we honor the gift that God's given us is by pretending that it never happened. Whereas a simple, just silly illustration of this would be so if, if God himself gave you a gold watch, my guess would be you would never go anywhere without wearing it. It would be so proud. Look, look at what God gave me. He gave me that. See that? He gave that to me. Isn't that amazing? You'd wear it everywhere, wouldn't you? Because it's a gift God gave you. But yet God gave you something so much infinitely better than that. He gave you this person that was such a huge part of your life. And so what we're going to do is act like that never existed? No. You see, to love is to remember. That's what the Bible teaches. Do this in remembrance of me. You know why? Because you love me. You know what, Jesus? Jesus, you know who he said that to? He said that to his closest relationships. He, he didn't say that in the square to 10,000 people. He said that to the people he was closest to in the whole world. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So I hope that you process your grief in a healthy way. And here's the reality. You know, this was a good conversation. You know why? Because either you're going to leave me or I'm going to leave you. And so we should be prepared because that's the way this is going to go down, right? And when the people around us lose somebody, we want to be able to move in and sit on the floor with them and cry with them. And You notice the grief in the Bible, just one little, little nugget of help too. Do you notice that when people approach someone that they love that's grieving or when they grieve with them, 
that they, they also tear their clothes and put dirt on their head? Like, they're dirty, so I'm going to get dirty. You see? So, like, if, if somebody that you love is grieving and they're sitting on the floor, they just sit on the floor. Or if they're, you know, sprawled out and can't, you know, then just, you know, hold their hand. Or just, in other words, just be, just be like them in whatever way you can. Try to enter into their moment. Not only will you be okay, but you'll be better off for it. Let's pray. Father, thanks that we can have this whole conversation in the context of...